Advent, as we've said uh, the last two weeks in our weekly emails, it's a time of waiting, a time of watching, a time of anticipating. We're waiting for the return of Christ, and that is true in November and October, just the same as it is true in December, but we set aside these four weeks to intentionally think God's thoughts after Him, which is what theology is, about how to wait on the return of Christ. So that's what we're doing in the prophets. But I am aware that there are dozens, if not hundreds, in this room who are also simply waiting for Christmas morning to arrive with some level of excitement and anticipation. And right or wrong, thousands of children in this country and even around the world are waiting to see what Santa Claus will bring them on Christmas morning. Will they get what they've asked for? Or will they get something else? I don't know where all of the traditions surrounding our Christmas traditions in this country. I don't know where they all came from. I don't know where all of the Santa Claus traditions came from. But somewhere along the line, children have come to believe that what they get from Santa depends on what? Whether they're naughty or nice. If they're nice, they'll get something good on Christmas morning. But if they're naughty they'll get something else, something like coal. Parents can even hold this over their children's head, right? Where did this notion of getting coal for the naughty come from? Originally, um, people said that Santa came in through the window on Christmas morning, but when fireplaces became prominent in Europe, he started making his way down the chimney. And if he came to the house of a particularly naughty child, the bottom of the fireplace, he would simply pick up a lump of coal. They used coal for their fires and put it in the stocking. But have you ever noticed that most kids don't think that they deserve such bad gifts? Most kids don't think that they're really that naughty. They think they deserve to get nice things on Christmas morning because generally speaking, all things being equal, compared to others, they're relatively pretty nice. This is illustrated in a poem that I used in a sermon a number of years ago, but I'll use it again. It goes like this. Coal in the stocking that's hung up for me, coal in my packages under the tree, Coal for my sister and coal for my brother. Coal for the baby and father and mother. Santa, it seems, traveled down from the pole, bringing us nothing but presents of coal. No one's been naughty. We haven't been whiners. Santa's new elves just all used to be miners. (laughs) That's generally the way that people think. I mean, we've really not done anything that deserves getting coal. We deserve nice things. Now, I'm not here to comment 
right or wrong on whether or not your family should talk about Santa Claus on Christmas or only talk about Jesus. But if C.S. Lewis has taught us anything, he's taught us that there are certain truths embedded in the stories that we tell our children. Stories that he calls generally myth. Not that that means they're not true, but a myth is the story that cultures tell. And I would go so far as to say that the stories that have developed around Santa Claus do have some truths to teach us about the true meaning of Christmas, as we always talk about. Hopefully that will become clear as we go on this morning. If you would, please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Last week we began a series in the prophets called, Do You See What I See? The prophets lived during dark days, but they saw a day coming when the light would dawn. They saw a day when the long-expected Messiah would come. But the prophets said that this expected Messiah would come in unexpected ways. And that's where the stories about Santa Claus and what Malachi has to say come to touch one another. You see, not everybody will get what they expect when Christ returns. Some will receive God's good gifts and His blessing, but others will receive coal, as it were. Others will receive judgment. That was the message that Malachi had for the people in his day, and one that I think we would do well to listen to in our day. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going, I'm going to begin reading at the last verse of chapter 2, verse 17. And if you'll notice, uh, I'm going to read through verse 6 of chapter 3, which begins the next section if you're reading from an ESV, but I think that verse goes with the section that we're in. So this is what God's Word says. God, speaking through Malachi um, to the people of Israel, says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will set is a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." 
I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the challenges of this series, for me, and I think for you as well, is when you're in a book like Matthew, I do all of this context work once, and then I get to use it throughout the whole series. And a book like Malachi, a book like Jeremiah, next week Zephaniah, the next week is Micah, got to do the context work every week so that we can understand where we're at and what's going on within the passage that's before us. So what's going on in this passage? Essentially, the Israelites in Malachi's day, if I can put it in the language I've already used, thought they deserved good gifts from God. But at this stage in their history, they're getting coal. And they're a little upset with God. The Israelites had returned from exile, from captivity in Babylon. That's good. And they're now back in the promised land. That's good. But they had fallen on hard times in the years that Malachi was writing. They hadn't received anything good from God in their estimation for years now. They're under the thumb of a new world power, the Persian Empire. And under the thumb, under the regime of the Persians and the surrounding nations in that Persian Empire, the blessings of God had been squeezed out. They were experiencing economic hardship. There's a lot of poverty in Israel. They were being politically suppressed. They weren't happy with God. They're saying, essentially, this isn't fair. The bad guys are getting all the good stuff. The bad guys are getting away with murder. While we, your people, God, we are getting nothing but coal. We don't deserve this treatment. And yet, they knew the promises of God. And so they were waiting for a Christmas day, if you will, that would be better than the last few years. They were looking forward to the time when the promised Messiah would come. They were looking forward to the day of the Lord. For on that day, God would give blessings to His people, the good gifts that they wanted, but He would drop the hammer on their enemies and bring them the judgment that they deserved. That's what they were looking forward to. Let me show you where some of this is coming in that last verse of chapter 2, verse 17. It sets up the problem of our passage this morning. It begins what scholars call a disputation between Israel and God. It says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied Him? 
by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking where is the God of justice? Israel is essentially questioning God's faithfulness to his covenant that he made to his people, questioning his faithfulness to the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They are poor. They're not being blessed. They are being oppressed politically. If God is going to let the bad guys run amok, then he must actually think the bad guys are good. And he must think that we are the naughty ones. He must not like us. He must like the pagans in the Persian Empire more than he likes his own people, Israel. And so they say, this isn't fair. Or, to put it explicitly in the language of the text, where is the God of justice? That's the way they saw it. But as you can imagine, and as we're learning in this series, we need to see things the way God sees them. And the prophets show us the way God sees things. We need to come to see what they saw if we're going to properly anticipate the return of Christ. They're questioning God's faithfulness. That's the way they saw it. But it's actually... Israel, who's not being faithful. That's the way God saw it. In chapter 1, we see clearly that their priests, the religious leaders, are offering blemished sacrifices. They're allowing this to take place. In chapter 2, we see men are divorcing their wives on no good grounds. In chapter 3, um, we see that they're not bringing their tithes into the place of worship. They're holding back what the Lord had given to them. They're the ones not being faithful. That's why God says, you have wearied me. I'd paraphrase that by saying this. God has no patience for people who question his faithfulness when they themselves are acting unfaithfully. God has no patience for people who question whether or not God will fulfill his promises when they themselves are not even trying, not even acting like they are fulfilling their promises that they made to God. As we see in verse 6, God doesn't change. He's faithful. He's proven himself faithful over and over. Now, he acts in ways that sometimes we don't understand. His timetable is different than ours. But God is faithful. The issue at hand here was Israel's lack of faithfulness. And so, in the answer that Malachi gives in the verses that follow, it's as if God is saying, you're accusing God of unfairness of not being faithful, of not bringing justice and judgment. Okay. You better be careful what you ask for because all of that's coming. But it's coming in a way that you may not expect. 
And so in verses 2 to 5, we see two unexpected things about the coming of God's Messiah, about the coming of Jesus. The first is found in verse 1, which teaches us that Jesus is coming again, but we need to be prepared. Jesus is coming again, but we need to be prepared. Let me read verse 1 again to show you where I get this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Notice there are two messengers here. The beginning of the passage, my messenger, And then a little later, the messenger of the covenant. They're not the same person. The first messenger prepares the way before the Lord. The second, this messenger of the covenant, is the Messiah that Israel was seeking. The one in whom they delight. They would delight when he came to set things right. That's who they were looking for. The one who would bring judgment on their enemies. But the thing to notice here is that before the Messiah comes to set the world right, Malachi is telling us that a messenger needed to come who would prepare the way. And we know through reading the New Testament that that messenger who prepared the way was John the Baptist. He prepared the way for Jesus at his first coming. But I believe that his ministry also helps us to be prepared for his second coming. In what ways? Well, if you think about John's ministry, he basically did two things, both of which are instructive for us as we prepare for the return of Christ. The first thing he did was very simple. He pointed people to Jesus. People came out to him to be baptized in the wilderness and they said, are you the Christ? And he said, no, I'm I'm not the Christ, not me. He said, look over there. There he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John pointed people to the Savior, to the Messiah. The second thing he did was call people to repent of their sins. We see this in Matthew 3, which was read earlier. It's interesting to me that what Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 3 is almost the same type of situation that was going on in Malachi's day. Let me just read what he said again so that we've got it in front of us. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the unexpected part about the coming of the expected one. The first time Jesus came... And the second time that Jesus comes, some of the people that you would expect to receive good gifts actually receive coal, as it were. 
Why is that? Well, it's because people presume upon God. They presume that I'm good with God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees made that presumption based off of maybe their ministry. I'm in ministry. I must be good with God. The people in Malachi's day made that presumption based off of their ethnicity. We are children of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. We're the elect, the set-apart ones. We deserve God to give us good things. But the challenge is, in this presumption, presuming upon their heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is they didn't share the faith of their fathers. They're doubting God's goodness. They're not even pretending to be faithful to God. Later in the next chapter, they say, what's the use of serving God? It hadn't done any good for us. That's the kind of people they are. They're not showing faith in their faithfulness. Malachi's message for them, John's message during his day, the message for us today, it's this. You need to repent if you're going to be prepared. You need to repent if you are going to be prepared. Why did they need to repent? It's ironic that they say to God, where's the God of justice? Why is that ironic? Well, what is justice? It's giving a person what they deserve. Giving a person what they deserve. Either the good things that they deserve or maybe the punishment that they deserve. But it's giving a person what they deserve. Israel was not giving people what they deserved. They're asking God to give them what they think they deserve, to give their enemies what they deserve, but they're not giving people what they deserve. They're asking God to be faithful, but they're not being faithful. In what ways had they broken faith? In what ways had they not given people what they deserve? Well, the first that I've already mentioned was in their marriage relationships. The men were leaving their wives to chase after pagan women who did not worship God for no good reason. They were practicing no-fault divorce before it was ever popular within America. Their wives deserved a lifelong faithful relationship until death do you part, but they were not giving them what they deserved. That's not all. There was also unfaithfulness towards others in the community. Look at verse 5. There's sorcery going on. Adultery. Perjury in the courts. And then listen to this. They're not giving workers what they deserve. They're holding back wages from them. They're not giving widows what they deserve. They're not giving orphans what they deserve. They're not showing foreigners the hospitality that they deserved. And the reason for all of this was because, you see this at the end of verse 5, they didn't fear God. In other words, they weren't giving God the worship that He deserved. And as a result of that, 
this lack of fear of God, this lack of right worship, it was affecting the way they were treating everybody else, not giving them what they deserved. How ironic that they would accuse God of not giving them what they deserved and their enemies what they deserved. The problem sometimes with reading a passage this old is we think that doesn't really apply to us today, especially not us evangelicals. I mean, you know, we're the good guys, right? Why is it that the Scripture is full of warnings in the Old and in the New Testament to people who think they're good to go with God? Could it be that throughout all of the history of the church, there are always people who think that they're good with God and that they'll be okay when he returns, when Jesus returns. Have you ever been to a funeral? Have you ever noticed every funeral is kind of like kids on Christmas morning? They all think everybody is in heaven. Maybe we should set up and take notice. Investigate our own heart. Are we prepared? Unless you repent, you are not prepared. There have always been people who have claimed to know God, but show little evidence. People who engage in sexual immorality and divorce at the same rate as the rest of the world for no biblical reasons and without any remorse or repentance. People who lie and talk behind other people's back. People who call themselves Christians but are so greedy they don't even take good care of the people who work for them. Are so greedy they don't have any time or money left over to take care of the needs of those who are most vulnerable within our society. God says that when you're not acting faithfully towards others, it could be an indication that you don't actually have faith. The other issue is that we are so prone to look at the problems out there and fail to look at the problems in here. There are many problems in our world, many injustices, so many injustices that sometimes we may be prone to say, where is the God of justice? How long do we have to live under these ungodly politicians? When will the racial injustice stop? When will the school shooting stop? Why is the pro-choice agenda continuing to make progress, justifying the slaughter of children? When will the sexual revolution stop its march upon our culture? In a world of injustice, we long for the return of Christ. We long 
for Him to come and set this world straight, we should. And make no mistake, He will. But until He does, what Malachi is calling us to is to look in the mirror, not just out in the world. To look in here, not just to focus on what's wrong out there. To make sure that we're prepared. Are you prepared? That's the question this morning. Have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith in the Messiah that John the Baptist pointed us to? The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Whoever you are, can I challenge you today to not presume upon your Christian heritage. The only way to be prepared is to repent and to place your faith in Jesus. And that leads me to the second point, which has to do with why this is so important for us. Look at verses 2 to 5. These teach us the reason we need to be prepared for Jesus' second coming. And it is that judgment is coming on all who are not purified. Israel wants the Messiah to come. This verse tells us that He will. Or verse 1 did. This verse says, But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? Verse 5 tells us what happens when He will appear. He will draw near for judgment. So who can endure the second coming of Christ? Who can stand in the day of His judgment? God's answer is nobody who's impure. Nobody who's dirty. And if we've done the looking in the mirror that the previous section called us to do, that should cause us a little bit of, uh, I don't know. Who's not dirty in here? But the good news of this passage is there is purification that is available. Two types of purification are spoken of here. There's an external purification and an internal purification. The first, the external purification, is seen in verse 2. When Jesus returns, He'll be like refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. What do both fire and soap do? They separate things. Refiner's fire separates the pure metal from the dross. The soap separates fabric from dirt. So when Christ comes again, it will be a wonderful and joyous day for those who are precious metal, for those who are fine linen. But it will be a terrible day for the slag and the dirt. As we learned in Matthew there will be a separation on the last day of the sheep from the goats. I think that's what Malachi is saying here. A separation of metal from dross. A separation of fabric from dirt. A separation of sheep from goats. And on that day, 
The sheep will be given eternal life, as we learned in Matthew 25. The goats, eternal destruction. This purification begins with an external separation, a separating the people of God from all wickedness within the world. But maybe more importantly for us this morning is the internal purification that is to come, or what we call sanctification. When Jesus came the first time, praise God, he didn't come to separate. At that time, he came to purify. Verse 3 changes the metaphor and draws this out. It says, He will set as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings of righteousness into the Lord. What's being spoken of here, again, contextually, I think this is so important. Chapter 1, you see the priests, the Levites, who are offering blemish sacrifices on God's altar. Chapter 3, you see the people of God not bringing their tithes into God's house. There is a worship problem within Israel. What's being spoken of here is a restoration of right worship. The same is true for us. In our sin, we are prone to worship idols. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. What that means is we manufacture any kind of idol to worship with all of our heart more than the one true God. But when Jesus came the first time, he began a process of purifying a people for himself. And when he returns, that purification process will be complete. Those whom he justified, Romans says, he will also glorify, or I love the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, Christ gave himself up for the bride so that he could present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish. He is purifying the church for himself. How did he do that? Well, it's important to notice that the way he did that was by doing what people in Malachi's day were not doing. Jesus became the priest that did what Levi failed to do. He offered the sacrifice, that the perfect unblemished sacrifice that they were failing to offer. But he did that in a way nobody expected. That sacrifice was his own life. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And through his death, God's people can be purified of their sins. But also notice that what Jesus did when he died to purify our sins was also an act of bringing God's justice. But bringing God's justice in an unexpected way. Instead of us paying for our own sins... He paid them for us on the cross. So there is justice served at the cross while at the same time mercy is given to those who place their faith in Jesus. And now, coming full circle, in view of God's mercy, 
what are we able to do? Offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is your spiritual act of worship. God saved those who are not rightfully worshiping him through offering his life as a perfect sacrifice so that we can now give our lives in right worship to God. That's what the gospel accomplished. We do that with our lips. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, but we also do that with our lives. What Malachi was calling the people to in his day was a simple faithfulness to the God in whom they were supposed to place their faith. That's what Jesus calls his followers to as well. Obey what I've commanded you. I gave my life for you. I'm your Savior. I'm your Lord. Now simply follow me. Follow me in the ways that I have laid out in Scripture. In faithfulness in your relationship with other believers. Faithfulness to non-believers. Faithfulness in our giving. Faithfulness in all things. As you wait For the God of justice, the faithful God, show yourself faithful. Love justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. When Christ came the first time, he came as a good gift from God. Available to whoever believes. Whether you're naughty or nice. Actually, what the gospel says is none of you are nice. We're all sinners. That's what makes the gospel good news. That gift is available to you, not through works, but through faith in Christ. But when he returns the second time, not everybody will get the same thing. Some will receive the eternal promised inheritance, but others will receive eternal destruction. That's the sobering news of Malachi. Jesus is coming. Can you endure the day of his coming? The question before us is twofold. In light of his coming, are you prepared? Have you repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus? Or another way of putting it, have you been purified by the blood of of Christ. It is my desire for all of you that you will be now and until he returns in glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ came and that he is coming. That in your providence you designed that there would be two advents. We confess that sometimes in between we lose patience. But we know that the reason his return is delayed is because you are patient, not wishing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. And so I pray that that would happen this morning, that anyone here who has not yet placed their trust in Christ, that you would draw them to repentance, that you would purify them, And that their whole spirit, body, soul would be blameless at the coming of our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.